Morning. Good to see you guys this morning. Welcome to Summit. Uh, if this is your first time here, uh, my name is Jamie. I'm one of the, the pastors here. Um, we go, are going through the book of Genesis, as you see up there, and we'll jump into chapters uh, 18 and 19 today. Um, two announcements, uh, just to let you know, um, you know, we go to India and Nepal, we go to a, a bunch of places for, for missions. So if you are interested in going to Nepal, uh, there will be a table out there, uh, in the lobby for the next couple of Sundays, just to have more information see when the informational meeting is, see what the requirements are and what the dates are, things like that. So talk with Jeremy, uh, about that. If, uh, if you're interested, you can talk to me too. I've been like three times, so I, I'd, I'd love to, to talk to you about that. Um, if you are new here also at 11 o'clock, right after this service, uh, there's a Discover class that's going to be right across the hall, and it'll just kind of tell you who we are, where we came from, uh, kind of what we believe, how we're taking what we believe and, and pressing into the city and being missionaries uh, and making it actual, not just Bible study, but Bible living. Um, so just it kind of explains that a little bit if you're interested about that. And um, I want to follow up with uh, this week. I was able to, I've been in Charlotte all week, or right outside of Charlotte, uh, for some training for Acts 29 pastors, um, and I got, got back last night. But just to encourage you to know that we're part of uh, Acts 29 that helps plant churches that plant churches. So this is a, a portion or a piece that, that I get to be a part of. Um, <clears throat> so we have, uh, there were six families that were in. That uh, they're like, hey, we want to plant a church and uh, we just want to to maybe be assessed by you guys to see, hey, where are we in this process? And so they'll fill out anywhere from 55 to 70 pages worth of just personal data, you know, theological clarity and missiological clarity and methodological clarity and all this. Here's what we believe and here's where we're coming from and here's how our, our marriage is and here's how our finances are. And we read through all of this uh, like a week before and then we sit down with uh, this, these couples for two solid 10-hour days, <laughs> and we just talk with them. We do a preaching assessment. We do two and a half hours of personal and marriage assessment. We do a strategic thinking assessment, pastoral assessment. We hang out with them uh, in an informal time, just getting to know who they are, uh, and then we, we talk to them. And it's really just it's an honor and a privilege at the same time. We get to see these are the folks. Uh, this is my, my, my third one of these, and we've planted close to uh, in the last... Two years, less than two years, about 50 churches from these guys that are coming out. This is a southeastern, like, network. The goal is like 200 by 2020, I I think, just just planting churches. So just so you'll know what we're a part of uh, as a church, um, I did study this week. So don't think that I just went out there and I did study. I'm doing both. I'm good. All right. So what we've been doing is we've been following the story of Abraham, right? If you've been here, we're in chapter, we've been chapter one from creation all the way up to to Abraham now in chapter 18 and 19. Uh, We met him before he left his home. And you can go on and turn to chapter 18 and 19 and kind of follow along. Uh, We're going to be, you know, I can't read all the text. It's just too big. So we're going to kind of tell the story today. Um, But before he left home and he followed the Lord to the promised land, uh, to create a new people for the Lord. That, that, that's going to be how the Lord is going to bless all the families of the earth, save the families of the earth. And so we saw him have a mountaintop experience, and he got to meet God and have the covenant given to him, and then he messes up in the next chapter. And then he has a mountaintop experience, and then he messes up in the next chapter with, with Sarah, Hagar, and, and Ishmael. And so we're figuring out that we identify with Abraham. We are very much like Abraham. Right? We should figure that out by now. He is a picture of who we are as a people and as individuals. 
And so today we pick up in the first part of 18, um, and we're going to leave Sarah's story and come back to that in chapter 21, so that those will go together. Um, so three points today. Once again, they're going to be three people. Well, actually, three places are people. Number one is going to be Sodom. Number two is Lot. And number three is Abraham. And hopefully that will make sense. Um, when telling this story, it kind of occurs in three parts. All right, um, uh, because there's too much to to cover. There are three main sections. So the first one is when the Lord appears to Abram or Abraham uh, at Mamre, uh, right at the beginning of chapter 18. And then we've got when Abraham intercedes for Sodom and then when Lot is rescued and Sodom is destroyed. I'm pretty sure if you've grown up in church, you're familiar with this. If you have not, you're going to hear it for the first time. It's It's a great story. Um, so beginning in 18, Abraham is, is just kind of hanging out at his tent. He's taking a siesta. It's very, it's the hot part of the day. I'm thinking we need to adopt this as a culture. Um, he's just kind of sitting there because it's hot, and that's what normally what you do. And when that happens, he sees three guys at a distance, and he, and he suddenly realizes who they are, and he runs out to meet them. And he calls one of them Lord, and he offers them hospitality, which is normal for the, their culture, right? Hey, come in. Let me give you a meal. Let me give you some bread. Let me give you some uh, water for your feet so you can wash your feet. And then he proceeds to, to get a calf and, and make an entire meal. And they all just sit there, the Lord and two angels, we find out later, for a meal under the shade of a tree. So let's just pause there a second before we get into our points. God came and sat down with Abraham and took a meal with him. This is an intimate thing, Okay. And you'll notice this time when God shows up, not like the first time when God had to say, um, you know, he's talking to Abraham, fear not, fear not. He didn't have to say that this time because Abraham has grown in his faith over 24 years. God didn't just give him some things to do. It wasn't a business transaction where he had a list of things of sick and traveling people that he was, let's just do this, 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 this. Let's run through the mechanics of me before I come before sovereign. He had a meal. With God. God sat and they talked under a shade tree and he came to meet with him face to face. Even after all the unbelief that he exhibited, all the, the kind of dumb things that he did. And so I'm thinking in prayer, maybe we should have some times like that to where it's not just about praying for God to do this and praying for God to do this and for we'd like to see you do this and which is great. And we do need to do that. But enjoying the presence of God, knowing that he desires that, that he, he loves us, that he's, we are made in his image, and that he loves relationship because he exists in Trinity. He exists in community. Therefore, he loves relationship. To understand that that should break into our, our prayer life, to spend more time in praise and adoration and meditation on Scripture and just being in his presence. Do we even know how to do that? Does that come natural to you? Like every night, like if I'm in town without fail, my wife and I just sit on the couch. Kids go to bed. We take everything we're, ta- we're taken care of. And sometimes we talk about we got to do this. We have our sync meeting where we can sync up the week and we got the groceries. And, here's, and there's stuff, housekeeping that we have to do. And then there's times that, and this is most of them, most of the time we just kind of sit there and just like, I, I like you. <laughs> I'm so glad we're married. You know, and this is a terrible analogy. It's a great one, I think. She thinks it's terrible. But, but if you get, get the feel, kind of, you can feel both sides of this probably. But a, a friend of mine said that a great relationship's like your favorite old T-shirt. 
That's the one I want to wear every day. It just fits. It feels right. It's, that's about relationship. That's the way it is. We're just sitting on the couch. And so my thought would be, yeah, sometimes we're, God, man, I want to see you move. I want to see you do this. I want, and I'm repenting here. That's great. And sometimes it's just, I'm just glad you're here. I just, I'm glad you're real. I just want to praise you. I just want to spend some time in adoration. I want to look like the Psalms just a little bit. I think that'd be awesome to learn how to be with God like that. So we see in verse 20 that the Lord is on his way. He's kind of passing and he's coming to see Abraham and Abraham. And he's like, hey, you know what? He sends two angels on down to Sodom to investigate the great outcry. That's what, that's what the Bible uses three times. It says that there's a great outcry that has come to him. And so point number one, Sodom. So most people know about Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, Jesus talked about them. Jude talked about them. Peter talked about them. Sodom in the Bible is an example uh, of what happens when we choose to live in consistent and direct disobedience to the Lord. Right. So in the in the story, the Lord comes down to investigate, and 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 he stays back with Abraham, and the two angels go down in the city. It says to kind of check things out. They're checking out that they go to find out the true state of things. And of course, when Lot sees them at the gate, Lot is Abraham's nephew. He lives in the city, right? They see him at the gate, and he says, "Oh, hey, hey, come to come to my house." Like, no, no, we're good. We'll just stay in the town square. And he's like. No, seriously, you need to come to my house. You don't know this place. Okay, so when he presses them to come to his house, they say, okay, that's fine. We can, we'll do that. They, so he prepares a meal for them just like Abraham did, um, and he's, you know, he's very hospitable to the angels. Now, while this is happening, uh, the Bible says in verse 4 that the men of the city, both young and old, surround the house and want Lot to surrender his visitors to them. Right, and, and the language that is used there is, hey, the, the, the visitors that are with you, let us have them that we may know them. Right? And so what we understand that to mean in, in the biblical language would be that this is kind of like a mob that wants to commit violent sexual assault against the two angels. This is where we get our word sodomy. This is the state of the city uh, from young to old. This is debauchery and rebellion. Um, it's the mindset. And so that's kind of the picture and the apex of what the Bible highlights here. And yet the, the scholars also will tell us that the idea of the words, a great outcry, allude to a cry for help. Like, where is it coming from? It's coming from the people that are being perpetrated against. Right? It's from uh, the, the faceless folks that don't rise up, that you don't necessarily see on the news, the, the victims of violence, because this type of sodomy is, is not so much about pleasure as much, as much as it is about exerting power over people. It's about violence. It's crimes against the poor and the marginalized throughout the city. And it's not just one kind of sin, although it's highlighted by the apex, right? And so the lack of fear of God has reached its climax in the city. Remember when, when God was talking about the Amorites and their, their sin is not yet full? Sodom's is. And that's why he's going to investigate that. The sinful environment has affected the move of God in a similar way to the flood. We remember the flood. We went through that back at Genesis 6 and 7. And, but instead of wiping out the whole earth in judgment, it's just one city where it's, it's concentrated. So God's contemplating right now wiping out an entire city. 
As the mob presses in on his door, Lot pleads with him. He goes outside and he closes the door behind him. He's like, please. And he calls them brothers. Brothers, please do not act so wickedly. And he knows exactly what they're doing is wrong. And Lot continues to take care of his guests to the degree, this is, this is, he wants to be hospitable, right? To the degree of saying, I have two daughters, two virgin daughters. Do with them what you will. But don't, don't harm my guests. This is really a dark, a dark place, right? And then the town accuses Lot of then becoming their judge. They're like, you're not even from here. Who are you becoming our judge? Who do you think you are? That's kind of the story we get. And they turn on him. They try to break down the door. And the angels at the last second kind of pull him into the house. They jerk him back into the house. And they strike the men with blindness. But it doesn't stop them because the Bible says that they continue to try to grope for the door. It's this point where the angels say, Lot, family, it is time to go. The Lord's going to destroy this place, the whole city. So Lot tells his daughters and, 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 and his daughter and, and, and their husbands, and, and they don't believe him. Kind of like Noah's neighbors, you know, like, sure, it's going to rain. What's that? <laughs> they had not seen rain yet. You're crazy. This, this, is not, this is the way it's always been. It's always going to be like this. They thought he was joking. And so he's told to go, and, and he finally, because the Bible says he lingered, they seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, and, and the Bible says, the Lord being merciful to him and brought him outside the city. They said, keep going, don't turn back or you'll be swept away. And then the Lord rained down fire out of heaven. And in fact, the city was, while it was being destroyed, Lot's wife, we know, if you know the story, they were walking away. She was a native of there. She turned back and turned into a pillar of salt, which is just a column of, of salt. That's Sodom. Quick story, right? Just pass right over it. And we can be really quick to point a finger and say, that's justice. With a huge amount of pride in our hearts. They got what they deserved. And so my my quick follow-up to that would be, you think that's what Abraham thought? You got to get the whole story in there, though. See, Christians are really good at pointing fingers at sin that they don't struggle with. Right? I'm not saying it's not sin at all. But we're really good at saying, you've got a problem. And what it comes across is, but I don't. Right? And we always want justice for others and mercy for ourselves. But you don't understand. You don't know how I grew up. You don't know what I've been through. And we're quick to minimize our sin and maximize the sin of others. And we minimize God's holiness and we overinflate our own. That's just how we roll. Adam and Eve, blame game. It's not my fault. Push it over there. He made me do it. The snake made me. Because we truly believe we aren't that bad. And we're experts at self-justification. We find ways to prove ourselves. And we think, God thinks the same thing. We're not as bad as Sodom. We've always got that. Well, I'm not a Sodom person. Hold on. 
trust me, you don't want God's justice on you. Because he's holy. His standard is perfection. His standard for righteousness is the life of Jesus. So before we go there, let's look at Lot. All right? So remember, what does Abraham think about that? All right, well, let's talk about Lot. So way back in chapter 13, Lot, he comes to the valley. Why did he go to the valley? Remember, Abraham's like, Abraham's like well, he's Abram at the time. Why don't you just take, you look around and see, go whichever way you want. And so he's like, that looks really lush. It looks like the garden of God, of Yahweh, is what he said. So he went to where it looked good. Abraham, you know, got kind of stuck with the deserty kind of area. And he's like, man, I don't know. I shouldn't have let him choose. I mean, we didn't read that. That's kind of the way I'd have been like, man, I should have been such a nice guy. Shoot. But Lot went that way. He took the better choice. Maybe he had a better chance of being profitable. Then we read, we read that he moved his tents to the outskirts of the city of Sodom, which is where the valley was. And then we read in chapter 14 that he was living in Sodom. And in this chapter, he's a homeowner. <laughs> he owns a house. He's all up in the city. Up in the middle of it. Is there anything wrong with that? And he's sitting at the gate. That's what elders did. People that had places of authority back in that time. They just hang out at the gate during the day sometime. The Bible says he's a believer. And yet somehow he'd assimilated into culture anyway. Oh, I knew you were going to talk, start talking about a lot like that. It's true. And that doesn't mean he's just like the world. And Second Peter says, And if he rescued righteous Lot, talking about the Lord, Greatly distressed. So Lot was greatly, this is Second Peter 2, verse 7 and following. He was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man living among them day after day, he was tormented or tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. So it's not like he's enjoying the, where he lives. It's, his soul is being tormented. Day after day, what he saw and heard, right? So he doesn't like what he, the, some of the things about his home, yet he's unwilling to give it up. That, so that, there's a tension there, right? He's a property owner now. He's a person of the town. He married a native that's from there. Yet, and Peter calls him righteous, and yet it's difficult to detect any real faith in him from this chapter. I mean, he was appalled at the behavior, and yet... He lived there and stayed there. So we have to wonder, how did that happen? I mean, he's a believer that's in the world, good, not of the world, okay. But is he for the world? Can he be? I mean, how he's living is not right exactly what Jesus was talking about when he said, be a light in a dark place. Because he's unable to be an influence for the Lord, either due to his weakness because he's blended so much, or, or, his, or his worldliness and his lifestyle. He is indistinguishable from the rest of society. Maybe he started out living missionally. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a light for the Lord in a dark place. Or maybe he saw a business opportunity in the valley, and he was simply going to be a believer and make a good living. Neither of those are sinful motivations. They do require, however, a high level of discernment. To know if you can handle that. Is this what God is calling you to? Did you pray through this? Or did you see a lush valley and think, I'm going there. That's for me. Or did you see, hey, there's a people group. Man, I can conquer that. 
Have you conferred with the Lord? Have you asked for wise counsel to come around you in community? Have you spent time in prayer on your knees? We didn't get that picture from Lot in chapter 13 or 14. And so Lot is the focal point right now, and he's the one being rescued in this story. God, in his mercy, is providing a way out for Lot in a very similar fashion to the way Noah came out of the flood. You see how we, I told you, think in patterns. Here we are again, being saved out of, a remnant being saved out of, one for the many, right? We, we see that over and over and over. And here's another picture of it. But we see Lot, and even though he follows the Lord, he has his heart anchored where he lives. And so when the angels are urging him to go, right, the Bible says he lingered. And his sons-in-law didn't believe him, and they thought he was joking. And uh, you know how he, he got, how he, how he actually left? If you'll remember, the angels, quote, had, he seized him and his wife and two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And he brought him outside the city. Why did it have to come to that? Lot was slow to believe his wife couldn't easily give up the life that she had. She grew up there, but it was their home. They had a family there. They prospered there. They had grown slowly closer to the world than they did to God a little at a time. We can certainly see that in his children if you read the end of chapter 19. In a prayer, I pray for my children. It's First John 2, 15. Do not love the world or the things of the world. I just pray that over them. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Lot was dangerously close to loving the world. His wife was too close. Their influence for the gospel was zero, not because they were outnumbered as believers in a city, because that's what missionaries do sometimes, but because they had slowly assimilated into, a, into loving the world more than they loved the word, or more than they loved God. He's living a dual life. And Jesus says you can't do that. So don't underestimate the power of culture. You have to be prepared for that. You have to exercise good discernment in that. And in mercy, they were torn from that trap and freed. And sadly, Lot's wife, her heart was more in the world than it was for the Lord. And she she could not not look back. And so I say, be amazed by the Lord. Captivated by him, find your, your heart, find its true satisfaction in him. Do you believe that, right? Uh, are we settling for fake joy, for temporary fulfillment uh, that always overpromises and underdelivers? So maybe you're unconvinced that you're like Sodom. I'm not that bad. I'm not that bad. But maybe you find some similarity with Lot today and how you're living life. Right? Do you look like the, the rest of the world? Is there something that distinguishes you from the world? If the Holy Spirit were re- to remove his presence from your life, would your life look any different in how you go about it? Finally, Abraham. This is my favorite part of the story, so I, I saved it to last. So I'll put it in order. So before the judgment of Sodom, it happens. Let's back up. All right, let's see an incredibly interesting part of this story. It's absolutely remarkable. Because for a long time, I did not understand why chapter 18 existed. Because it doesn't push the narrative forward. It doesn't make sense with Isaac being announced. I didn't understand it. Abraham is interceding, right? That's what we see at the end of chapter 18. Um, I'll, I'll read part of that in just a second. But it's like a combination of a prayer and a courtroom drama, 
<laughs> right? It's just, it's just kind of in between those two things where he's interceding. And, and look at how this, this reads. It's chapter 18, verse uh, 20, 22. And so the men turn from there, and so the angels are going down. Verse 23, um, God and Abraham are, are, are standing there. And Abraham drew near, which is actually some courtroom language. And he said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the, the place and, and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just, what is right? And the Lord said, if I find 50 at Sodom, 50, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. And Abraham answered and said, Behold, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord. I, I'm who, but I'm just, I'm dust and ashes. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of the five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. And again he spoke to him and said, suppose there are 40 you're found there. And he answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. And then he said, oh, Lord, let the Lord not be angry and I will speak. Suppose there are 30 found there. And he answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And he said, behold, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord. I, I know where I am. I know what I'm doing. And I'm, I'm going to press in anyway. He says, suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20. I will not destroy it. And then he said, oh, let the Lord not be angry, and I will speak again. But this one, suppose ten are found there. He answered, for the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way. And when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. And so he begins by praying or, or approaching God by appealing to his nature, to his character. First of all, do you pray like that? <laughs> you appeal to who God is. Oh, God, you are righteous. You are a judge. I know you are the judge of all the earth. That's, that's how he, he starts it off. Shall not the judge of the earth do what is right? He knows that God is just. He knows that he is right. He loves righteousness. So he's appealing to God. God, you are a God of justice and righteousness. I'm going to appeal to you on that front to save Sodom. Really? He knows that God will not wink at our sin and that he doesn't just sweep it under the rug like it's not a big deal. He doesn't just go, oh, I just forgive it because it's not that big a deal. This is not a just God. It's not a holy God. It's not the God of the Bible. Sin is a huge deal. It's wrecked the earth. It causes war and famine and poverty and disease and death. He knows that. Not to mention it is an affront to an eternal God. So he appeals to God. On the basis of justice. But we also know, to balance that, that, that Abraham knows that he was chosen. Chapter 12, they chose him. He's just like, I don't know, why'd you choose me? Hey, I just did. I pleased to. It's not because you're awesome. It's not because you can walk a really long way. It's not because I know that you're going to be the best guy on the team. I'm just choosing you. And Abraham knows that. 
And maybe at first when he got chosen, he thought, God chose me. I'm a pretty good dude. I'm a pretty good person. I mean, I left my home when he called me. I would not have chosen to live in Sodom like Lot did. In fact, I gave Lot the choice of the land. That was pretty selfless. Maybe I'm a pretty good guy. But we're in chapter 18. And if you know anything about the last three or four weeks, you know that Abraham has blown it. He is not righteous in his action. Right? What is he, what has he done? Well, j- just to remind you, if you don't, if you don't know or you weren't here, he's recently put his wife in a compromising position under Pharaoh. He's about to do it again in the next chapter, right? He's fathered a child from a servant just to fulfill God's will, which was not God's will. He's just trying to, to shortcut and detour around it because he's tired of waiting. He had fathered, uh, uh, he allowed Hagar to be treated harshly and beaten by his wife and run out into the wilderness. In a sense, Abraham is as guilty as Sodom. But he'd been forgiven. Time and time again. And so he knew that God also was loving and that he's a God of grace and that God chose him despite his disobedience and he chose to bless him for the nations. How can he be both loving and just? Is Abraham just trying to get Lot saved and his family? Because you know he cares about him. Or is he hoping for the whole city? Realizing that he has no different standing before a just God than he does. I mean, he doesn't even necessarily like the city. It's messed up his cousin. I'm not saying he has a warm spot in his, in his heart for them. It's corrupt to them. We do know that desire, he desires Lot and his family to be saved. So if that's the only reason, why doesn't he just pray for it? Lord, just save Lot and his family. He doesn't. He starts at 50. Lord, if you value righteousness, I know that you do. I know who you are. I've spent 24 years with you. If there are just 50, and then as he, as he goes into the courtroom drama, and he is the mediator, he is the interceder, he's the lawyer to the judge for on behalf of the people, right? Abraham, Abraham has this realization that, As the number comes down, it's worse than he thought. 50. 45? 40? 30. There aren't that many that follow the Lord there? 20? 10? And God has agreed to each one. And then he gets to 10, and incredibly curiously, he stops. Why? (laughs) I've always wondered. What's the question we're all waiting for? What if there's just one righteous person? Would you save the many for one absolutely righteous? Would you save the many sinners for the one? Do you love righteousness that much? But Abraham's awareness of sin... And his need for righteousness grew tremendously during that encounter. Abraham knows himself, and he knows there's not one. 
this scene in Genesis points us to the cross. That's why it's in there. Otherwise, it doesn't make any sense in the story and where it's inserted in Genesis. Abraham can't deliver like Jesus can. Because God is just, he cannot take sin and just sweep it under the rug and just forgive it because he's a good guy. He's righteous, and sin must be accounted for, and it must be paid for, and it must be equivocated. And because, but because he's so loving, he chose alone to provide the payment. And in the cross, these two come together, the justice of God and the mercy and the love of God. And so we fast forward to the cross. The cross essentially is Jesus approaching God the Father like Abraham and saying, What Abraham couldn't, if there is one absolutely righteous person, would you save the many? But unlike God, unlike Abraham, this time God says to Jesus, yes, I will save them if it's you. Because he is the only one that is absolutely righteous, that the great exchange can be made through. Jesus' death for the life of his people. And here's what we need to understand. Without Jesus, we will suffer the fate of Sodom. We're Sodom. I don't care what you think about. I don't care if you think your sin aren't as bad as their sins. There is ugliness in our hearts because of the fall. We are broken and depraved. We want our own things. We want to be the rulers of our own lives. We want to be thought of as awesome and great. We want to be made much of. We want to be the king of our own dominion and realm. And we package it in such a way that it's socially acceptable because we know where we live. We know how to put up a Facebook page. We know how to run a Twitter account. We know how to do it. But our hearts want to be made much of. With Jesus, we're light. Our hand is grabbed out of the mire and jerked and sa- to safety, seized to safety, even though we in our hearts would linger because of the shininess of what's around us. And so we say, don't be lulled to sleep in your soul, by the world. Jesus is the better interceder and the one who stands in the gap for us. And we find that in Genesis. Let's spend some time in prayer. A couple of take-home applications. And the worship team can go on and come up, up here. Can you weep over your city without just being shocked and angry. I mean, the stuff we see on Facebook, the stuff we see in the news, the things we see out of Hollywood, the things we see, do we just go, that's awful, I'm glad I'm not a part of that? Or can your heart, like Abraham, desire to intercede, knowing where we come from? Knowing that without Christ, we're in no different can our hearts break for that, for, for folks to be saved? There's just one righteous among you. There is. We have a hope that Abraham doesn't have. 
that we point people to believe in who Jesus is? Do you spend time praying for people you don't like, you don't agree with, that they might see the cross and be changed and transformed in their heart like we were? Or is it easy enough and comfortable enough to to stand back and lock bombs through Facebook Messenger? And so what Jesus does is, is he comes into our world and he lives among us and he walks right into it. Because he's not afraid. And so as his people, how do we do that? So I'll just ask you today, how do we pray for our city? How do we pray for those that we don't like? How do we engage with our city? Because as the future goes, less and less people probably are going to come on Sunday morning. How do you love those that are around you? So we have three prayer directives this morning. Pray for someone you don't like to be seized by Jesus. What does that mean, Jamie? I like everybody. Okay. Let's start with your pride and your fakeness. And maybe you need to do some heart work there to realize you're not finished being saved yet. Put that before the Lord. Somebody you might not like might be your spouse right now. Let's be honest. Let's be real. You don't have to be rude. But you can be real and honest and, and, and just say, Lord, this is where I am. And then this is the beauty of that, that follows that prayer is, I can't change unless you do something. You've got to grab my hand like Lot. I'm lingering. I'm holding a grudge. I'm living with somebody in my debt and I'm waiting for them to, to do enough so that I can release them. That's not Christian living. That's worldly living. And you pay a debt for that as well because people live rent-free in your head and they own you. Christians are able to let go. And we have to fight for it sometimes. We fight in prayer and we say, God, meet me where I am. I don't have enough for this. He says, that's right. You're dependent on me. It's always about me. And the quicker you see that and the quicker you give into that, the quicker joy will flood your heart. And remember, you're supposed to be like a child in how you come. Number two, pray for a burden for the city. Because if we don't care about our city, why would we go to it? Why would we care about loads of love? Why would we care about ESL class? Why would we care about people that are checking us out at Walmart or, or, or Publix? Why would we care if we don't care about our city? Why pick somebody you're random to care about? Pray that God would give us as a corporate body and individually a heart for those that don't know Jesus yet or that those that are trapped in cultural Christianity and morality and they have the dead end of trying to perform to just trying to be a good person they don't even know what that means because it changes every week when our culture changes by Hollywood it's a moving target this is not a moving target and then pray for its salvation and then finally maybe you're lot maybe you fit in with the world And you make zero impact for the kingdom, for the gospel. That you would pray that God would take you by the hand and just jerk you out of the cold heart, the cold heart, the dead heart, the numb, the apathetic, where you just come because you have to, or you just come once a month because you just want to make sure people see you just enough to know that you're still a good person. There's no life in your heart. 
It doesn't mean you're not going to struggle. It doesn't mean you're not going to hurt. You will. We're here. But we're fighting together. We're trying to figure this out and learn how to follow Jesus with everything that we have together for the grace that it bestows on us, for the passion for his name, that he has one name that's above all names. And we want people to know that because that's where our hope is. That's where our salvation is. Pray that God would save you out of just nominative living that makes zero impact for the gospel. So let's spend maybe two or three minutes there. I'll finish this in prayer and then lead us through the Lord's Supper. If you're new here, I'll explain that. Would you, like you did Lot, God, that as we linger, would you seize our hand? Would you drag us out, expose us to true life and love that is only... these The grace that you put on us, the love that you put on us, the peace that you pour over us, these are benefits of the gospel that flow out of the gospel itself, the cross, where you, as a just God and as a loving God, came together and died for us. You took our place ransom was paid we can't pay for our own sins and yet that is exactly what you chose to do the only one that could and so we thank you today and we never get over that 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 is where the gospel comes from in our hearts that empowers us and gives us fuel to love those that don't love that, do, that don't, aren't lovable to us that don't in our minds don't deserve our love and we are like those in Sodom saying who are you to judge us God would you come would you live in our hearts that we might sing praise to you now 
that our hearts would overflow. Holy Spirit, that you would move in our hearts that we might love our city, that we might care for it, that we might intercede for it like Abraham did, that we weep over it like Jesus did over Jerusalem. And that from that, God, your name would be worshipped more than it is now. That's our hope. Help us. We recognize our dependence and we repent. We want to repent from turning away from you being hard-hearted. Help us to be honest with you today. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Guys, if this